I do the word of the week to start the podcast, but that will not be happening in this episode because I want to explain first why today's podcast is actually coming a week late. It's something I haven't discussed fully publicly, but I am ready to share now. On Saturday, July 8th, my mother-in-law, Tanya Bailey, was discovered unresponsive in her car by my husband at what was later determined to be a cardiac arrest. And unfortunately, because she went several minutes without oxygen, it created severe brain trauma and she passed away the following Saturday. As you might imagine, this has been an incredibly difficult time for our family. Tanya was just 66 years old and my husband was her only child, her only son. Though she was beloved by her family, friends and the entire community in Ecorse, Michigan, where she lived pretty much her entire life. I've got friends who have very shaky relationships with their mother-in-law, but that was never my testimony. From the beginning, back when me and my husband were first dating, she welcomed me. At her memorial service, so many of her loved ones told me how she bragged about me, how she was so happy that I was her daughter-in-law. And that's the energy I always receive from her. And I'll have more on that later. And I got a story to tell. I just really enjoyed her company. And of course, I loved all the stories she told me about my husband and what he was like growing up. My husband made the brave and courageous decision to donate her organs to those who are in need. And the way it works at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit is that before they begin removing your loved one's organs for donation, they give you a chance to say goodbye to them. The doctors also sign a blanket thanking you for this donation because a lot of people are very reluctant to engage in this process, especially African-Americans. But my husband knew that his mother would love to know she helped others, and that's why he did it. Anyway, during my goodbye to her, I just thanked her. I thanked her because she changed my life with the way she raised her son. She raised an incredible person. She raised the man I was meant to love, and I promised her I would take care of him and love him until the day that I died. It meant so much to me that she trusted me with him, her most precious gift. I've realized as we've begun our process of healing that we take time for granted. I know that's a cliche and I know we're constantly told that we shouldn't do this, but we're human. So of course we take time for granted. Let me be the latest person to tell you not to take time for granted. My mother, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law all the same age. And my husband and I thought we had years before we really had to seriously worry about our parents' health. My husband and I were already thinking about maybe trying to plan a family cruise, what we might do with our families for the holidays this year. And now a big piece of that will be missing because his mother is gone. Now, when I was a regular churchgoer, my pastor used to say, no man knows not the day or the hour in referring to death. I think about how on that Saturday, Tanya and I were discussing the whole Kiki Palmer usher fallout and just kind of catching up, just kicking it. She brought me some banana pudding because that's my favorite dessert. And then a week later, she is gone. 
Time is not to be taken for granted. The other thing I want to say before getting into who the guest is for this final episode of this season is a message directed at women, especially black women who are listening right now. Doctors believe what may have contributed to my mother-in-law's cardiac arrest is hypertensive heart disease. Until this year, she hadn't been to the doctor in quite some time, something my husband constantly nagged her about. She did have high cholesterol, but she began to take positive steps to change her lifestyle. She lost 25 pounds. She changed her diet. But when you read about some of the factors that contribute to hypertensive heart disease, you'll find a lot of us are at risk. This is a common disease that impacts one in three adults, but women are three times more likely to suffer from heart failure. Heart disease and stroke is the number one killer of black women. According to the Cleveland Clinic, you're at risk for hypertensive heart disease if you have the following factors in your life. If you have high blood pressure, which 58% of black women 20 years or older do, if you don't exercise, if you have diabetes, if you have high cholesterol, if you're older than 45, if you're overweight, if you smoke or use tobacco products, if you eat a high salt diet, if you drink alcohol. Three of those factors apply to me. And I'm guessing a lot of you listening check one, if not more of those boxes that I named. I just want to encourage you all to take care of yourself. Please get a physical every year. Have your doctor check your cholesterol, your blood glucose levels. And most importantly, be honest with your doctor. If you smoke, and that includes weed and hookah, tell your doctor about it. When we go to the doctor, let's keep it real. Most of us lie about how much we drink, myself included. If you ain't in the gym, say that. And then when you lay it all out there on the table, develop a plan of action to eliminate or curtail some of these habits. You can do it. I know you can. Also, learn CPR. I'm sure you all heard about how LeBron James's son, Ronnie, was hospitalized due to cardiac arrest last week. Thankfully, when my mother-in-law went into cardiac arrest, two of my husband's cousins, who are nurses, were close by and they immediately began giving her CPR. But I don't know CPR and neither does my husband. And this is something we plan to remedy right away. So if you don't know CPR, learn it. And if you do know it, but you're rusty, go learn it again. I don't want anyone to go through what we've been through in the last few weeks. So I just wanted to share that with you all. And one final thing, which is unrelated to what I was just discussing, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, this is the season finale of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And I just want to thank you all for again, helping to take this podcast to yet another level. Thank you for the feedback, the support for following me on Spotify. I read pretty much all the comments you leave on the Spotify app about the podcast, and I try to post as many of them as I can. But your support has not gone unnoticed and it will always be appreciated. I hope to have more information soon about when you can expect season five. So stay tuned. And now on to today's show. My guest today is a brilliant actor who has some astonishing credits in his multi-decade career. He is a fixture in multiple movie franchises, including the Marvel Comic Universe and Ocean's Eleven. He's been nominated for an Oscar and a number of Emmys, Golden Globes, and even a few Grammy nominations. 
But I appreciate this guest, not only for his contributions to film and television, but also for using his voice and platform to speak about racial, social, and political issues. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Don Cheadle. It is such an honor and a pleasure to have you, Don Cheadle, on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, actor, avid golfer like myself, <laughs> talented in so many different ways, you know, with the, the instruments you play, you, you do a lot of things. But I'm going to start this podcast with the same question I ask every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, and that is, when did you, Don Cheadle, become unbothered? I mean, I think it started pretty early for me. You know, my mother was a very outspoken, you know, she's been an educator. She had many things that she did in her life. She taught young people of color, mostly young black kids, life skills. Uh, you know, she ran HR and she was always very much about advocating for yourself and speaking up and, you know, never having to to either play the background. And I think just very early on that gave me a lot of, I won't say confidence, but I, ha I had a sense of right and wrong and who I was and, you know, how to show up to the best of my ability. And my father was a clinical psychologist, very thoughtful person, analytical person, and would challenge you to ask questions of yourself and to question your choices and just to really kind of be present. And I think in the face of that, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be externally bothered. And sometimes you will be internally bothered. But for the most part, it was, you know, instructional on how to be centered and, and know who you are and try to come from a place of authenticity. And if you're doing that, you can deal with whatever comes back. You know, as long as you are willing to deal with the consequences of being front and center, then there you go. Give me a sense of what was the your path. Like you said, you've always been that person, but um, I feel like that this is the season in your career where you have been the most outspoken. So how did you sort of grow into using your platform and your voice and really giving yourself, you know, kind of a megaphone out here? There was no plan, you know, and I would say that the moment came to me as much as I came to the moment, you know, I think that a lot of where it started for me as, as understanding even what the platform was and how to use it and what it meant to show up for causes was when I uh, was in Hotel Rwanda and was approached by a bipartisan congressional delegation to travel with them to Chad and the Sudan to see what was happening up close and personal with the human atrocities there, the genocide there, the, the, the civil war there. And they saw Hotel Rwanda as a, a, a way to platform discussions uh, about what was currently happening in the region. And that's when I realized like, oh, there's a power to this. I know I'm the bright, shiny object in the room. And my job is to point to people who've been doing the work long before I got there 
and who are much more knowledgeable about what it is that you know we were up against and to really shine the light on them you know if i'm the thing that people are paying attention to then when they're paying attention to me i can go okay well talk to them look at them you know these are these are people who have in many cases risked their lives and lost their lives you know showing up for people and being an advocate for them in a way that i'm just doing a small part to bring attention to so like I said, and, and, and I think we're the moment that we're talking about, that you and I are talking about, has been charged and was hurtling toward us as, as I moved toward it. So to stay silent in the face of everything that was happening, I'm not going to go so far as to say if you're out there and you're not standing up, you're complicit. But you've in some ways made a tacit agreement that it's all right. And And again, I'm not trying to moralize or proselytize about it and say like, you need to, you have to, you should. It's not that. I just felt, I have felt that and realized that, oh, I have an opportunity to, to, to do something. So I'm, I'm going to do it. Well, since we're on the topic of how, I don't know, which is the chicken or the egg, you meeting the moment or the moment meeting you, you certainly created a moment a few years ago when you wore Protect Trans Kids t-shirts when, t-shirt when you hosted Saturday Night Live, which I always think sort of that's what real allyship is, is like not just showing up for just you or the people that look like you, but showing up for a community that is maybe being harmed in similar ways that you recognize and showing up when no one asked you to. Right. Because it's easy to show up like I I, I chart the companies and the even some of the newsmakers who were all about talking about racism and racial inequity and social justice after George Floyd. And then I look at where they are now. And those same people that were loud then are not nearly as loud now. And it feels like there's been a regression. But nevertheless, when you had that moment on Saturday Night Live, what was your thought process going in? Did you like how much planning and thinking did you do about that? Because that's making a very bold statement in front of a nationally televised audience. So take me into what that process was like for you. There wasn't really a plan. SNL is a very well-oiled, especially by the time I got there, well-oiled machine. And you know how many changes you're going to have and how many act breaks there are going to be. And it's really like you're on a train that's going a thousand miles an hour and people are grabbing you and pulling you and changing and did it. You know, so there's a couple of moments in the show where you can wear whatever you want. You know, there's no set um, costume. And um, I had been given that shirt by someone and I just felt like it was a moment to make a, a loud, silent statement about protecting vulnerable people. And, you know, I've, I've come under fire a lot for a lot of it. And there's been, I don't know, equal parts support and castigation. But it, again, like I was saying at the beginning, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You stand out on the thing that you believe in and saying protect a vulnerable community, people that are being killed for a choice of how they want to live their lives that doesn't hurt anyone else. To have that be an objectionable statement to me would seem ludicrous. That's something that people wouldn't understand. And, you know, when we talk about people who are about freedom and they use that word and liberty and these words get tossed around and then you kind of drill down, you're like, oh, I think you just mean that for the things that you believe in and the things that you like. So. 
again, it, it was a, it was a personal thing for people in my life, particularly that I did that for. I didn't really think about a larger impact. I was speaking to some very specific people. So how do you balance, you know, cause there are causes that you are not secret about supporting and issues that you often voice that, you know, really mean something to you and you see what's happening in our wider world. How do you balance that against what you do for a living where, you know, the people that sit down and want to be entertained by Don Cheadle, when they start to maybe learn about what Don Cheadle really cares about, they may be like, oh, is this the Don Cheadle that I really want? So how do you balance what you say versus within the, the art community that you're in? I think by asking, is this the Don Cheadle that I really want? You know, because I got to I got to go home with me every day and I got to, you know, confront myself all the time. And I, I don't want to, you know, it, it, it's great to have the ability and the opportunity to to be in this industry and to make a great living and to be able to support my family and do the things that I want to do and that I get to do and that I'm privileged to do. Conversely, that's not the whole of me. You know, I, I wasn't born in the MCU. <laughs> you know, I, um, I'm a, a dude who grew up in the Midwest and, you know, was a, a kid who just liked to make believe. And as I got older and got, you know, it got obviously more refined and became a professional and understood really the power of this, 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 um, you know, thing that we get to do and being able to say things in film and in TV and as a writer, as a producer, as a director, all the different ways to plug into this, to be a storyteller, to hopefully make people think certain things, change people's minds, always to entertain, you know, because I think that's the first job. But entertaining doesn't mean that you have to unplug your brain. So for me, I've always wanted to smuggle in things, you know, and and just always challenge myself to to find compelling ways to look at sometimes challenging things and put it in front of people to discuss and talk about. And if that ever stops and that's not really what it's about anymore, I guess I'm done. You know what I mean? I don't, it wasn't anything I ever imagined would happen. So if it goes away, I guess there'll be a slight warning, but if it goes away because people are like, you shouldn't be supporting people who need support or you shouldn't be standing out on issues. And it's like, I guess I shouldn't be here then. And that's, That'll be what the consequences. You know about that. You know about that, Jamel. You know, I know. Right. And um, but it's it feels like I might have a little more leeway than you do, because, you know, I just I just say shit. I'm like, fuck it. Like, y'all don't like it. Y'all just don't like yeah. it. Yeah, right? I think it's what it is. I think that's the real answer. Right. People could look at that and go, wow, you really paid a cost for standing up and making a statement. And the real arbiter of that is you. You know, if you feel like the cost was worth it or it's still valuable and you have and here you are you still have a platform you still have a, a voice and are using it it's like i think everyone has to decide for themselves what what it's worth and what you are willing to accept as the consequence of whatever actions you take and that's just between you and you let's talk about you brought up the marvel mcu marvel comic universe which you have been a part of now for quite some time I am familiar with this story and I'm going to ask that you retell it to some degree. But initially you got into the way you got into the universe. You didn't have very long to decide whether or not you were in <laughs> on playing War Machine. Just a couple of hours. They, you know, the powers that be, the decision makers, 
the the Wizard of Oz, they called you and said, hey, Don Cheadle, you have two hours. Are you in this Marvel comic thing or not? So take me back to that moment. What did that feel like? And what were some of your initial reservations about signing on for initially what is six pictures to play this character for over a decade? Well, it was something that I had gone in on early. Like I, I went in to meet on the first on the first Iron Man when it all first started. Half of the people wanted to cast me, half of the people wanted to cast someone else. And that was sort of the and it went Terrence's way. And then after uh the first film, I, you know, wasn't really intimately aware of everything that happened inside, but I knew that there had been a parting of ways between the two of them. And uh I got a call very soon after that and you know was told this is something that we're not going to leave open for a while we have to move forward and we want to do it quickly and if you don't do it trust me we're calling somebody right behind you uh so you know we're giving it we're offering it to you now and it's six movies and it's a couple of iron mans it's like four avengers or four iron man three Avengers. i forget exactly how it broke down but it was six movies, you know, and I'm doing the math in my head. And I'm like, that's that could be 12, 13 years. And I said, well, what's going to happen with the character? What's the arc? What's the journey? They're like, we don't know, uh, but you're going to be in them. Um, do you want to do it or not? And I said, well, it's kind of hard. to. I'm at a laser tag birthday party with my daughter. They were like, oh, well, take two hours then. Go ahead. You have plenty of time. And... <laughs> You know, between hiding behind stuff and pew, pew, pew with, you know, my wife and kids, you know, we were just discussing, like, should we take a flyer on this and ultimately decided to do it. And, you know, here we are, like you said, 13 or something years later, 14 years later. I don't even know how many years later yet. So I've always wanted to know this. So how does it work when you sign on to a multi-picture deal? Are you negotiating what you'll be paid for every picture at that moment? Or do, does that change with every picture? How does it work? It changes, you know, it, it, it's for me, because I don't know what anybody else is doing. People, other people, you know, and I ain't in the Robert Downey sphere. So there are things that are happening with RDJ that aren't happening with anybody else in the MCU. But um, no, it's just a sort of a vague outline of, of, of a contract per everything. And there's general, you know, it's going to increase and there's general stuff. But then, you know, the last Avengers comes out and breaks the world and does what it does. So, you know, there's no way you're not going returning to that again. You know, you don't don't make a movie and it makes two billion dollars and they go, okay, we're not doing that again. So, you know, the the MCU goes on and my relationship in the MCU MCU goes on and and Rhodey's journey goes on. And that's what's exciting about this latest one, Secret Invasion, because we get to see more Rhodey over the course of the show. And I think that's something that I've been really desirous of doing, getting more familiar with who this person is and what makes him tick. And hopefully as it goes forward, we'll just continue to peel back the layers on on who he is. And, and tell me if I have this wrong, but it, Secret Invasion, is that centering a Nick Fury story? Because obviously Sam Jackson is it. Yep. So it's a Nick Fury centered story. Yep. Obviously, Rhodey is a part of this. So uh, I know you and you and Sam go way back, but what is it like working with him? It's great. I mean... Yeah, I've known Sam for a long, long time, and we've always wanted to find something to do together, and the opportunities have just have never come up. And I, I think when they were thinking of this story arc that these characters take, that wasn't initially going to be Rhodey. Then they thought, wait a minute, this 
could actually be great to see these two guys kind of go back and forth and also to platform what happens in the next movie. So let's figure out a way to bring the roadie character into this. And so after a lot of discussions with the writers and the producers and, and Kevin, we decided that it would be a good way to use Rhodey and to, to start to do what we're saying, start to peel back some of the layers on who he is and, and get to know him and get to understand what makes him tick. Because Rhodey is getting a feature film, correct? Yep. So I know you can't give much detail, but you mentioned that fact. Or any. Or any, right? Because <laughs> I, I know how Marvel gets down and Disney gets, I know how they get down. They're like, basically, you know, somebody go come up missing if the wrong detail gets out. Exactly. You see the red dots start to show up. Right, <laughs> exactly. I do, I do <laughs> understand how they do this, but I'm sure when you started this, I mean, were you hopeful or did you anticipate that eventually this would lead to you and your own standalone project for this character? Hopeful, sure. You know, I, I always felt like there was more to explore with this character and, and more things to weave in to this, the storyline. And, you know, obviously in the, in, this, in the comic book world, these characters have huge stories. And, they, you know, at one point, you know, Rhodey takes over for Iron Man in the comic book. So there, the, I think the, uh, Kevin, under his leadership, and all of the creatives under him have done a really good job at being faithful to the comics, but at the same time creating it their own their own mythology and not really violating that, but trying to pull as much as they can from that and still be innovative and and you know do things with the characters. So I knew that there was a lot of room to grow and a lot of ability to to have Rhodey stand on his own and not be in the shadow of Tony or not be just a player in the Avengers, but to be someone who we get to know in a deeper way. And I'm excited because, you know, for me, which is something that I dig about Secret Invasion too, it's it's less about the bells and whistles and, and green screen and tricks and stuff. And it's more about the people. And to have a cast like this with actors like this, you know, Ben Mendelsohn, Kingsley Benadair, and Emilio Clark and Olivia, it's just a lot of actors have come together and there's real juicy material for us to lean into. And that's that's really fun. You know, Marvel catches a lot of strays from the film industry, from from Hollywood. And, and, and by that, I mean, people are very critical of the impact that Marvel has had on not just filmmaking, but also movie going. So what are your thoughts on some of these criticism that Marvel, that people now, they only want to go see movies where you have, you know, eight, nine superheroes, that the superhero has replaced the actor slash movie star as someone in the MCU universe, add your two cents to this very hot topic about Marvel's impact on filmmaking in Hollywood. You know, it's sort of, I think it's not dissimilar to how inside the business anyway, there was outrage at how much actors were getting paid and how much back end. And it was just not commensurate to what was happening in the world. And that's terrible. It's like, but it came from the people who were paying the actors a lot of times. People can be upset, I guess, about the landscape and the environment that's out there, but it's not like it's because of Marvel. The Marvel movies are things that are these, you know, four quadrant, you know, international, huge blockbuster events that a lot of money is poured into, you know, in the producing of it, in the in the PA, in the marketing, all of that stuff. But if everyone stayed away in droves, that'd be the end of it. You know what I mean? So there is a supply and demand component to this that I think supersedes all of that. 
and why people are trying to copy the model. Uh, I personally lament the fact that studios, until the streamers came along, were disinterested in doing smaller movies, things, you know, $50 million, $30 million, $25 million, because I did a lot of those films. And that's some of my favorite stuff, my favorite work. You know, everybody's there for the love of the game. People aren't getting paid a ton of money, but everyone really believes in the project and that's why they're there. And sometimes you're like, stiff me on the front end and let me participate in the film and the back end. And if it makes money, I'll make money with it. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, but I'm here for that run. Um, I think some of that may start to come back as there's been a backlash to the streamer situation a little bit. But to blame Marvel because a bunch of people want to watch Marvel movies is kind of crazy to me. Again, I just wish that the studios would figure the economics out so that it wasn't just about a bottom line and stockholders um, and people trying to preserve their jobs, but that they really went back to a time when, look, I came out of the 70s movies and that genre of filmmaking. And even in the 80s, when the mini majors were still around, Fox Searchlights, not that they're gone, but that there was a real focus on smaller films. And it wasn't just, you wouldn't just, if you didn't catch it in the festival, it was gone. They would actually put it in the theater and you could have an opportunity to see some of these movies. So I hope there'll be a resurgence of that because I I miss it too. I don't want to just go see a Marvel movie in the theater. I want to see smaller movies. I want to see movies with filmmakers that are really interesting and innovative. And I I I miss that time too. The only thing I blame Marvel for is that Y'all have unfortunately convinced people, all filmmakers, it seems like everything don't need to be three hours, y'all. Like they didn't really, the movie times, dad, like it's killing me. Me too. It's killing me. Like, I, I listen, I love John Wick. It, it has been an incredible franchise. And me and my husband just watched the, the fourth installment. And I, I swear to God, I don't think I've seen that many people get murdered in a movie in a long time, but that's neither here nor there. But I did not know this movie was damn near three hours. I was like, he just shooting people for three hours. I was like, John Wick. That's a lot of shooting. That's a lot of shooting. Did you really need to be three hours? And I just noticed the runtime for these movies. Just why? <laughs> I can't answer that. I know that became sort of a trend. I can't answer that because it doesn't seem to make sense either in the economics because you think you'd want a lot more turnover uh, and things to be shorter. I can't explain the trend. I've been in a couple of them that I was going like, Really? You know, I don't, like, let's wrap this up. y'all. <laughs> yeah, that we get, we get, the point has been made and some editing would have really helped this along and let's leave them wanting more. So I, I look, I'm on the same side as you. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I know that it has been a trend in our business to, I think it's going to change. I think, I think we're still in, we're going to really be in flux coming out of this writer strike, coming out of what may also be a, an actor strike. And people really, you know, the, the streaming experiment, you know, I don't know, we, you know, we're not stuck inside anymore. Uh, people, you know, the binging everything and just sitting on your couch because what else are you going to do? That's kind of fading. So I think we're going to move into uh, a new era. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I'm hopeful it would mean some of these movies that we talked about coming back will come back. And hopefully there will be some real energy for new voices and innovative stories and and just a different way of doing things. But look, I've been doing it professionally since 1983, I guess. And it's there's it's always morphing and changing. You know, it's always the business is is always in flux. So we'll see where we come out. But 
I hope we can get back to some of that stuff because I, like I said, I miss it too. All right, Don, we're going to put a pin in this conversation, but we'll be right back in a moment with more with Don Cheadle. The best part about my mother-in-law's recent memorial service was the stories that everyone told about her. They were funny and heartwarming. A friend of hers from high school told the story about how she dented his parents' car when they were in high school and was extremely unapologetic about it. A co-worker told a story about how he made a key lime pie and messed up a key ingredient because he was trying to be cheap. And Miss Tanya Bailey told him his pie was trash. It made me think about some of my best moments with her. So I got a story to tell, or maybe I should say stories to tell about some of my fondest memories of her. Let's start with one of the first times my mother-in-law saw me on television when I worked for ESPN, back when Ian and I first started dating. Her and my husband were apparently watching my show, and I guess she was sharing her impressions of me. And she said to him, damn, she got some big titties. Now, that story always made me laugh because I used to be president of the Flat Chested Club and never thought I would see the day when anyone would describe me as busty. Hey. Now, I will miss how we used to kiki the story she told me about what Ian was like growing up, how he was such a finicky eater, taking after her, how much he loved wrestling and his first crush was his kindergarten teacher how she fell in love with his father because he could dance and he apparently made her a spaghetti dish that she still found to be quite memorable and even why she broke off their engagement. In one of her last texts to me, which came after we hosted her and my mother at our home for Thanksgiving last year, Tanya wrote this text to me. I just want to say that I couldn't have chosen a better wife for my son. I love watching the love that you have for each other. And I pray you continue to express and work on that love for each other. I am sometimes sad that I didn't work harder on my relationship with his dad when we were together. To raise my son in a strong and loving marriage was the only thing that I couldn't give my son. May God continue to bless your union. I love you both. Now, these stories will never get old. And although she's physically gone from our lives, her memory will last forever. And now back to more with Don Cheadle. It's very obvious that you have an adept skill to be in part of these major ensemble casts. You, you know, we, you did it in the MCU. And of course, we know you from the Ocean's Eleven franchise. When you think about the Ocean's Eleven and that franchise, what are some of your favorite sort of filming memories? Because I think one of the reasons why that franchise works so well is because you guys looked like you were having fun and you could feel that as somebody in the audience. So what are some of the favorite memories you have from filming those? Well, there's a bunch of them. And I think you, you, you hit it on the head that we clearly dug each other. And when you would do something that you're getting paid for for free, you're not really working, you know, you're working. And of course it's a gig and you have to show up and do everything. But we literally, we all really enjoyed being around each other and we enjoyed working under Steven and the writing was always fun and interesting. And Jerry Weintraub, who produced that, who was like a modern PT Barnum, you know, the sets were always amazing. Our living situations were always great. When we did the second film, which people have no compunction walking up and telling you in your face, I hated that one. Uh, but we had a great time because we were all over Europe and we were all together. 
our families were together, you know, and we just got to see the world in, in a very precious kind of a way. And it felt like old Hollywood kind of. So yeah, those movies were a lot of fun, a lot of fun to make. And I still see those guys, you know what I mean? Today, I, mean, I just played golf with Scotty Khan a couple of days ago. So friendships started there that, you know, have continued to evolve and, and, you know, we've lost people along the way, Bernie and Carl, but we're glad to still be standing and, and still be making these connections. You know, George and I just started a school in LA and like I said, the relationships just have continued to grow and change. Has there been any thought given to running it back? There's been conversation and there's definitely been thought to running it back. It, it would be very tricky for a minute. We talked about it after the last one. And then when Bernie passed, we were like, Can't, how does that work? What does that look like? Can we still do it? And then Carl passed. And so, you know, it's like Ocean's Nine, you know, now. And it's like, is it, what does it mean to do it? What would it look like? Is it now like, what's that movie where all the old guys, <laughs> which, is it kind of that kind of a movie now? Like, you know, and, and then they did, of course, the Ocean's Eight with the women. So like, are they in it now or how does that all flow? So I think it's just a lot of moving parts. And I don't, and I, and again, there's been rumblings, but I haven't seen anything definitive about it. I just know every time I see George, he's like, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know if it's over. I'm like, I don't know if it's over either. Is that something you commonly heard that like from fans or whatever, that people didn't have any love for the second one? I, I love the second one. <laughs> like I said, it's funny to me because it's like one that people have no compunction just coming into, just walking up, look at your face, go, man, I love the Ocean's movies. Yeah, I didn't, I think the second one sucked. I didn't really like it. Like, like you weren't acting in it. You're like, you realize that's my job? Yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't like it at all. I, I thought it was garbage. Yeah. But I liked the, I liked the first one though, man. <laughs> now, uh, w are there any other like fan experiences that you have have had that have been like that where they told you like they didn't like you in something or my, or my favorite let me guess I bet this has happened hey man I loved you in that but yeah your co-host such and such terrible <laughs> or they'll tell you like I love that movie but I didn't really like like what you did in there and that like in that one scene when you was with that girl and you was like yeah yeah I'm like why are you doing that I'm not really I don't really feel that for you but I like, I dig that other movie. Like I've had that many times. I've had hilariously when I did um, the oceans movie, you know, which famously I've been destroyed for the, the accent and people hated the accent, you know, and especially spending time in London and it would depend where I was, you know, some people would come up to me and curse me out as a result of it. I'm like, it's a comedy. It's a movie. We're messing around. Uh, they, and then other people would be like, oh, I love the accent. I thought it was great. It just, you just don't know. But to all of them, I'm like, it's a movie. <laughs> you know, it's not, we didn't really rob a casino in Vegas. <laughs> we're, all, we're all actors. Well, based off the feedback you've gotten, what has been the character you played that you felt like people had the strongest reaction to? Was it Basher or was it someone else I'm overlooking? I think it depends on, you know, sometimes it's a generational thing, you know, younger people who would say roadie who don't know anything about what came before that necessarily. Hotel Rwanda, people, you know, have a strong reaction to for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, it just depends on who and what is mouse, devil in a blue dress, you know, you go to the hood, you get a lot of, that's, that's the love that we have is for that dude and that character and everybody's got a mouse. A guy was like, we had a mouse. In my neighborhood, he said, but his name was, and this is the coldest name I've ever heard. And it's like, I want to, 
So we had a mouse in our neighborhood, but his name was Sincere. I'm like, that is a cold gangster name. Sincere. Was that a government name or was that, you feel like that was just a, a earned reputation name? I think he was Sincere. And they're like, oh, my man, when he says he's going to put it on you, he's. Yeah, he ain't playing no games. <laughs> no, he ain't. He ain't playing with you. <laughs> uh, so when I was doing research for this, for this sit down with you, I don't know how I didn't know this, but. I didn't know you were married to Bridget. Is it Coulter? Is that, did I pronounce her last name right? Mm-hmm. Right. Because as soon as I saw her picture, you know, I immediately recognized her from her episode of Martin. Like I immediately, I was like, yes. from Martin. Yes. <laughs> right. The, the episode when I think Cole and Tommy were fighting over her. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. At the fight party. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> you got to, you, you got some problems. Respect. My house, yes. Immediately, I was like, oh my God, I, just, I love everything about this. And she's a very renowned uh, fashion designer. Interior designer, interior designer. I'm sorry, in, not fashion designer, interior designer. That's what I meant. Yeah. But how did you two meet? We had a lot of mutual friends, actually. You know, when I, when I, I went to California Institute of the Arts uh, from 82 to 86. And when I graduated, uh, I graduated with a real community of actors. And a lot of us were, you know, I, I think of it as kind of the golden age of, of TV and film at that time. And there were so many of us around in L.A., you know, hustling for these gigs. So you'd see the same people all the time and you'd see the friends of the same people that we saw all the time. Um, so I, we just bumped into each other because we had we had mutual friends a lot. But she was dating someone else. I was dating someone else. It was just. You know, oh, hey, oh, hey, you know, like that kind of a thing. And then one day I was with my friend at the Beverly Center and she was with her friend and they liked each other and they walked off to talk and they left us alone. And so we talked for a minute, but that's not when it really, she, she said she knew at that point, you know, y'all always know first. Sometimes, y'all always sometimes, know. I mean, sometimes y'all know. She's like, he'll, ca- he'll catch up. He's not, not aware yet <laughs> that I'm the one he'll get there. But then, you know, I saw her again on a set and I think I followed her and I was like, oh, it's you. And we just kind of, it just kept kind of coming together. But we weren't married until recently. I'd been with her 28 years before that. Yeah, I, I read that, that you all got married in 2020. Yeah. So 2020. So this is during the height of lockdown. So what made 2020 the right time? She found my trove of secrets and threatened that if I didn't marry her, she was going to let them all out. She still holds that over me every once in a while. She's like, huh? This picture? I'm like, I know you got it. I know you got the goods. We're married now. Chill out. So, <laughs> no, I think it's just like one, it's, it's something that we had never really, we weren't, either of us weren't going anywhere. So we weren't really in a hustle to do it. And then we were saying, well, we'll get married when Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon get married. And then that went south. So we were like, so now what are we going to do? I guess we'll get married when Brad and Angelina get, oh, that's not. So now, now what are we holding out for? But honestly, it was something that was as much about confirming something that was already there as it was about like being fiscally responsible with what we had both grown together. And, you know, it's like, listen, you know, our, our, our accountant was like, Look, you understand if something happens, God forbid, and Don walks out of here and gets hit by a bus tomorrow that you're giving half of that money to the government. 
and it doesn't just pass through her and it doesn't just go to your kids. And you've done all this to be able to hand something to people to hopefully have some sort of a, a legacy. And it's like, it's going to be gone. So what do y'all want to do? <laughs> I guess we better do it. Yeah, because I was going to say, was it the prospect that you thought the world was ending because of COVID? It's like, is that what happened? You're like, you know what? Before we get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, who knew what was going to happen? But I think, you know, I feel bad for people who were like stuck together. Also, the divorce rate went crazy during COVID, too. You know what I mean? It's like you were either when you were locked down with people, you're either like, oh, I really have I'm really into this or like, oh, I'm really not into this. And like I said, it was just it was just a confirmation, I think, for a lot of people. And we were really lucky that for us, it was the same way that it just was a lot of focusing. Do you know what I mean? Things became very clear about what mattered, what didn't matter, who was important in your life, who wasn't, you know, relationships that you want to make sure you're investing in and, and keeping strong and and coming back to. It, at that time, it was a confirmation. I had a very close, you know, I lost my father during COVID. We had lost close friends during it. So a lot of things happened that that was just a beautiful thing that was a counterpoint to a lot of that sadness and tragedy. So over the years, how did you all handle it? Because you guys were together for, you know, 20 plus years before you got married. So when people kept saying like, so when are you going to get married? And I don't even, you got, y'all got kids? Like, were the kids like, when y'all going to get married? They didn't care less. They didn't, they didn't care. I mean, I feel bad. My mom passed before we got married and she really wanted us to do it and but, oh, we're going to do it. But we, you know, we, we had built our home from the ground up and, you know, putting kids through school, me traveling all over the world, doing work and her starting a very busy interior design company. And she started a co-working space, Blackbird. Check it out. Blackbird Collective. Please check that out. She says she still runs now. We're like, we're, do we're doing so many productions. Thinking about a wedding was like, we can't. I, we don't. I, when are we going to? It was like, when, how, why? And really... People thought we were married anyway. So we weren't getting a lot of people asking, you know, like I did Wanda Sykes show and she said, oh, I heard that you got married over COVID. And I thought, oh, wow, this dude just, I guess everybody lost their minds over COVID. And I was like, no, it's to Bridget. She's like, oh, I thought it was like somebody else. Thought you slid some new woman in there. <laughs> yeah. You know, and we're living in California. I'm sure if we lived in Missouri or, or you know, Illinois, there had been more questions like, when are y'all doing it? Because it's expected. Out here, they're like, oh, they're just, they're cohabitating and they have kids in there. And our kids didn't care. They didn't know any different. You know what I mean? So uh, does it feel different? Yes and no. Yeah, I guess substantively, it doesn't, it doesn't really feel that different because we were calling each other husband and wife. You know, it's 30 years. You know what right. I mean? It wasn't like eight years or three years. It's like we've been doing it for 30 years. So the ceremony changes things. Of course, you feel like, oh, we're saying it out loud in front of people and concretizing this union with a pastor and your family. You know, it's like, oh, we're really we're saying it out loud in front of people. And now we're accountable in some ways to the space and to the world. But we already knew where we were. And, you know, we've we're, we've been on solid footing for a long time. So, of course, a lot of people, you know, remember when you had that viral moment with Kevin Hart, which uh, which was so funny. And it's still one of my favorite things to watch. Mine too. But at the same time, like I said, and me, you know, I'm 56 years old. Damn. I'm sorry. Cause I, it was a sorry. thought. No, no, seriously. It was Dude, a thought. It was I'm a not, thought and I blurted it out. I'm I did fine. not mean it that I'm way. Not, I'm fine. Okay. But just understand, I didn't mean it the way it came Let's, out. 
we'll take a poll on how you meant it with I'm, people here later after the show's over, but. I can sit up here and honestly say, buddy, that yeah, that was from yeah, a place of had, love. Got it. It was evident you all had chemistry there. So I've heard you mention before that you thought of something of where y'all might work together, some, some project. What's the status of that? Are you and Kevin Hart, are we going to see you all one day on the big screen? Wrestling Kevin Hart to the ground and <laughs> getting him to commit to a time. I mean, but he's, what is he? He's got tequila company. He's got restaurants all over LA. He's doing credit card stuff. I mean, I think he's like working on a taco sauce. I don't, <laughs> this dude's doing everything. So, you know, to, we, we want to, and every time we get together and we've even, you know, even a couple of weeks ago, we went and had dinner and sat down. I was like, okay, not, not a couple of weeks ago before the strike, we were not working during the strike. <laughs> Pre-strike. Pre-strike. We had sat down again, once again, to like kick it around and try to figure out what it would be and just kind of started ideating on it and literally coming up with plot stuff. And okay, next time I see you, let's like get this down and we're going to invite somebody in and record it. And you know, I'll just kind of do what we do and we'll figure it out. And then the strike happened. So the desire is there. The energy is there. Clearly there's a vibe there. Uh, I would agree with you that it's still hilarious to me when I watch that. It's one of the funniest things I've seen. Um, and I watch it like it's not me. But yeah, there's, there, we're, we're still knocking it around. We want to figure it out before we get too old. You've had such a robust career and have been able to play so many different roles. But have you ever come close to actually quitting acting before? Early. Early. Very early. And <laughs> just last week. Yeah. So I think it's a cyclical thing. You know what I mean? As, as the business changes. I mean, early on, it was because things weren't, I just think I was, just things weren't clicking and I wasn't feeling like I had made the right choice. And my parents, to their credit, uh, never, ever, you know, when I brought it up or when I talked about it, were like, well, then good. You need to like get over it and start getting serious about something to do with your life. They were always supportive. You know, I remember calling my mom very early in my career and saying, I don't know. I don't, I think I've made the wrong decision. I don't think I can do this. And she said, You've been talking about doing this for a long time, for, you know, since you were a child, as long as I can remember. She's like, don't give up on that. Don't give up on it. Double down. You know, it's going to happen for you. And I know I credit her for for that, you know, having me like double down and and then being very fortunate that that things happen. But, yeah, especially as the business changes and you're trying to create material, as we've spoken about in a space sometimes that that's not always welcoming to it or, you know, things are, it's so hard to bring anything into fruition as, in a production. You know, it's really, really hard to get things happening and it takes years of your life often. So finding that thing that you're going to commit that energy to and that time to is in a landscape that isn't necessarily receptive to it all the time. It's tough. So I, I don't think I've ever said like, I'm going to quit the business but I felt like quitting the business as I've been a part of it in the way that I've been a part of it sometimes, you know, just stepping back and doing, trying to figure out a way to do things a little differently sometimes. All right, Don, uh, I know you got to get out of here, but before I let you go, there's a game that I play with every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, uh -oh. and it is called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. This is where the controversy actually happens. So you've been warned. I'm about to get canceled. Go ahead. Yep. Come on. Let's do it. Hey, what better person to get canceled with than me? That's right. Okay. More 
lit group chat? The Avengers group chat or the Ocean's Eleven group chat? <laughs> the Avengers group chat, because there is one. <laughs> <laughs> there's not an Ocean's Eleven group chat? I'm so disappointed in this. <laughs> nope. There's individual discussions, but not like a group chat. So I'd have to say Avengers group chat. Okay. Give me an example of a funny conversation that might take place in the Avengers group chat. Are y'all arguing about who who has the better weapon? Like, what's what's happening? <laughs> it's mostly just free flowing insults. Oh, love it! Trash talk. Love it. And Scarlet saying, "Like, guys, I'm on here. Guys, this, stop with the sausage party stuff. I'm I'm on here." <laughs> it's a lot of that. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Okay. The cooler, probably largely unknown fact about you: the fact that you once bombed at stand up comedy, or that you did the theme song for the ice tray pilot that never was. <laughs> I'm going to say the second. I'm going to say the ice tray thing. Uh, so for people who don't know who are listening, if you recall, if you are up on your Fresh Prince of Bel-Air history, Don Cheeto played ice tray, Will's boy, his homie from back in Philly. Yeah. And they were going to actually make this into, it was going to be a spinoff, right? We shot the pilot. I think you can see it online. It's crazy. I saw it. Somebody sent it to me. I'm like, that's online. Everything exists online. So, yeah, you can actually find the pilot. I don't know how, but it's yeah. on there. Yeah. So so what what happened? Why didn't we get this goodness? They just, they didn't like it? Like, what happened? No, they loved it. And it was at a time when there was a regime change. And you'll understand this. You know, Brandon Tartikoff was running NBC at that time. And then he got sick. And it was on the schedule. And then he left. And then Warren Littlefield came in and was like, yeah, F all that other stuff. We're going to do my stuff. <laughs> and the pilot went away. Wow. R.I.P. Ice Trey. Yeah. You golf with a lot of comedians. So who's the better golfer? Is it Cedric, the entertainer? Me. I said the comedians. I kept it to the comedians. <laughs> you got to take your, Me. You got to take yourself out of it. All right. So it's who's the better golfer? Cedric, the entertainer, George Lopez or D.L. Hughley? Wow. Well, we famously play in the Brownie Cup together. It would depend on the day. I mean, DL bombs it. George's short game is crazy. Um, makes a lot of putts. Was with him when he made a hole in one. I was actually golfing with DL, Cedric, Chris Spencer, and Anthony Anderson. So we were all there and witnessed George's hole in one at Lakeside. Um, so George's short game is dangerous and tricky. You got to watch it. I don't know. Did I, did I already say me? Uh, you said yourself, but I, between the three of them. What about Sands game? How is, how is Sands golf game? We're getting said working on on, you know, on actually loading up the swing and not just picking it up and swing, but actually taking his shoulders back and, and keeping his head still and rotating around his spine and having a swing to deliver. So he's on that. and It's going to be. OK, so the real answer is you're the best golfer out of all of them. That's the real. Answer. I don't know why we're still <laughs> talking about it. You're right. No need to. OK. And finally, <laughs> last question. Infinity War or Endgame? What are those? Are those board games? Ah, uh, no, they, they happen to be multi-billion dollar movies that you have been in. Oh, this is Marvel stuff you're talking about. <laughs> Marvel. Yes, you were both of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to say Endgame. Is it because it was? Because of the Endgame. Literally is over after that. <laughs> or that iteration of it. Can we call it Back Endgame? Back <laughs> Because, baby, that would be appropriate. Yeah, yeah. That would be very, very appropriate. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, uh, Don, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I can't wait to see Secret Invasion. Love, obviously, everything that you give voice to. You know, just the fact that you're so willing to put yourself out there. And I'm also happy that you appeared on this podcast because now people can see 
that you and Freddie Gibbs are not the same person. Now they can see this. <laughs> I can't confirm that. We've also talked about doing something together, like a doppelganger. It has to happen. It has to happen. Where we would trade lives. I think it would be hilarious. Oh, my God. That would be... See, I think you just walked yourself into a feature. Whoever steals that idea and writes it, please just give me co-credit. Correct. You know, I just want to be in there, too. So wait, wait, just wait to after the writer's strike and or the actor strike that may be looming. Correct. No ex parte writing during the strike. I heard that. Well, anyway, Don, thank you again for joining me, taking the time. Good luck with everything that you have coming up because you got about 50 left movies about to come out. So good, good luck with everything that you're doing. Congrats on on, on the podcast, Jamel. It's great to, to see and hear you. You are also a great voice in the space and I'm glad you're here. All right. Well, Don is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it, I'm bothered. A couple weeks ago, the black community mobilized behind Carly Russell, a 25-year-old nursing student out of Alabama who admitted she lied about being kidnapped. The black community mobilized all across social media because we know that missing black girls and women often are ignored by the police and the media. So to galvanize that way after learning about her disappearance from family members through social media, let's just say black folks showed that they were frankly tired of being considered expendable. And then it turns out that she lied. Once she resurfaced two days after her alleged disappearance, she told Hoover, Alabama detectives that she was kidnapped after stopping her car along I-495 to check on a barefoot toddler that she claimed she saw walking along on the side of the road. Russell claimed a man then came out of the trees and grabbed her, taking her to a remote home for two days before she was able to escape. Cut to her attorney saying in a statement recently, my client did not see a baby and did not leave the Hoover area. She did not have an accomplice. She was not in a hotel or was with anyone while she was missing. Now, she could face charges for her deception. And if so, well, but as foul as it is that she concocted this elaborate lie for reasons that as of this recording of this podcast still remain unclear. That's not why I'm fucking bothered. I'm bothered because some black people, too many black people, in my opinion, actually feel embarrassed that they rallied behind this woman when we were under the assumption she was abducted or worse. Seriously, why the fuck should we as a community be embarrassed? Did any of us tell her to go reenact the great value version of Gone Girl? I get why some of us feel embarrassed or are throwing up our hands and saying this is going to set us back or worrying that they will never believe another black woman again. For one, black girls and women who go missing were being ignored prior to this. So after this, they'll more than likely go back to not caring about the 64,000 black women who have been reported missing this year. But by buying into this dangerous conditioning that we are or should be collectively judged, you're also buying into concepts that are actually rooted in white supremacy. That concept is that black people must always be on their best and most perfect behavior to warrant the smallest bit of dignity and humanity. 
There are numerous cases where white women have lied about being kidnapped, including a recent case where a white woman named Sherry Papini claimed that she had been abducted by two Hispanic women and chained to a pole for three weeks, when in fact, she'd been staying with an old boyfriend. Now, I'm old enough to remember Susan Smith, the white woman who lied to police and told them that a black man carjacked her and killed her two children when it was her who drowned her own sons. Did that stop police from using every resource at their disposal when white women go missing? Did that stop the media from exhaustive coverage of white women who go missing? No, it didn't. Why? Because white folks are always given the benefit of the doubt and considered worthy no matter what. So I'm going to keep that same energy when it comes to missing black girls and women. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. I'm bothered Hit you with the spice that I offer Fuck it, I'm bothered uh. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it I was born to get it Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 7'5 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.